This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. It is my deep understanding and belief that when we die, we die into this sense of wide open, non-dual, vast expansiveness. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Today, I would like to talk about fully conscious dying. Originally, I was going to talk about the path of knowledge and the path of devotion are one. And I was talking to Aurora yesterday or the day before, and she said, oh, people in the, in the support groups want to know more about conscious dying. And then I got a phone call from my dear friend Peter in Colorado, who is dying. In fact, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow morning to be with him. I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking about him. And I've been also thinking about my own practice. Conscious dying is what the Living Dying Project is about. We've talked about it off and on in various contexts over the months and the years. And right off the bat, I would like to even explore what conscious dying is. And you might remember that I said the title of what we're talking about today is Fully Conscious Dying. So let's first explore what is partly conscious dying. Okay, uh, which also applies to partly conscious living. Often, people, us, them, are going around being unconscious. They're identified with their thoughts, with their emotions. They become the emotion, I am afraid, I am angry, I identify, that's who I am, I'm separate from you. And the first stage of becoming conscious is becoming mindful. You're aware of your experience. You have an equanimous awareness of what you're thinking, what you're sensing, your emotions, your perceptions. Sometimes they're pleasant, sometimes they're, they're unpleasant, sometimes you resist them, sometimes you grasp, and you begin to develop a more conscious mindfulness of what it is that's going on in your life. Clearly, 
this is the first stage of becoming fully conscious. And clearly, if you or someone you care about is dying and they're lost in that first stage, oh my God, I'm dying, I don't want to deal with this, oh my God, that that is not the best way to die. Approaching death as openly as possible, all the spiritual traditions, the contemplative traditions say, the dying process is the best opportunity in an extended lifetime in which to wake up. Can we begin to practice right now as we're talking and listening here together on Saturday, being mindful, what arises in you as I start talking about death when I tell you that my friend Peter can't eat or drink anymore? What, what feelings come up, what thoughts come up, what sensations arise in you? And certainly to the extent that we begin to practice now, it will enable us to be that much more fully able to practice when we're in these crucial, critical moments of approaching death. It's very difficult when somebody calls up and says, I just found out that I only have a very short amount of time to live. I've never done any spiritual practice, but I think it would be a great time to start. Well, certainly better late than never, but when one is in critical circumstances, drugs, analgesic meditation, medication, a lot of emotions, a lot of family stuff might be flying around, very difficult to start practice then. Can we begin this exploration in a very focused way right now? As we become more mindful, the heart begins to open, the heart of devotion, the heart of compassion, gratitude, forgiveness, the heart of love. And this begins to really soften our ability to be with that which is difficult, to be with the emotions, the sensations as they're arising. And as that deepens, we come to the tantric stage where it's all the mother, it's all sacred, living, dying, pain, no pain, a very advanced stage of practice, but we're still not fully conscious because we're thinking there's this I who is seeing everything as sacred, I'm in relationship with the mother. So that fully conscious dying is getting to the place of non-duality, the thing that, uh, the, the stage of practice or even non-practice it could be called that Eckhart Tolle, Ramana Maharshi, Ramdas, many teachers have talked about. This is of crucial importance because it is my deep understanding and belief that when we die, we die into this sense of wide open, non-dual, vast expansiveness. So that to the extent that we have been training ourselves to become more and more comfortable in this surrender into beingness before we die, then dying is another moment of that. To the extent that our practice is still, I'm trying to be more mindful, I'm trying to open my heart more, I'm trying to do tantric practice, that, that's a good thing. But what I've been working with in my own practice before the phone call from Peter and before I was thinking about this talk is 
I just had a birthday. I just returned from a vacation with my son. I turned 81 years old, and I've been doing preparatory practices for 50 years now, right? What am I preparing for? How long am I going to wait to do this ultimate surrender, this ultimate practice? Now, I'm not suggesting that for you or I, that it's necessarily possible that moment to moment, every day to be resting in non-duality. That's a profound surrender. But I've been working with this quality of letting go, not only of the objects of my experience, but who I think the subject to be, resting in that spaciousness. Why are we so afraid of death? Perhaps the deepest reason is that we don't know who we are. And these initial stages of practice are designed to stabilize the mind enough, to open the heart enough that we can look very directly at who we are. We, we tend to believe in a, a personal, separate identity. But if we really begin to examine it carefully enough, we see that we're just an endless collection of concepts, ideas. We prop this up with our name, our biography, our partners, our family, our job, our, our bank accounts. And it's, it's this transient and, and fragile support that we rely on for security. Particularly when we're approaching death, it's not very secure to be relying on those kinds of things for support. The Dalai Lama says, it's not that there's no self because that's ridiculous. You're you and I'm me, but the self doesn't exist in the way that we imagine it does. The psychologist Winnicott always said that most people can't really get out of their childhood without creating a false self, a caretaker self that tries to take care of the intrusive or the abandoning environment of family life so that we become identified with a false self. And dying from that state of identification is not what I would wish for you or myself. There are really two direct practices for exploring wholeness, this fully conscious living, this fully conscious dying. One is the, the depth of devotion, non-dual devotion, if you will, and the other is the path of self-inquiry, the path of knowledge. Leonard Cohen said, there is a crack in everything, and that is where the light enters. So it's not about fixing the cracks or avoiding the cracks, but letting the life enter in. There are certainly a number of practices that can be done to prepare for what it is that we're talking about. All of these, in one form or another, are described on the Living Dying Project website under offerings. There's meditations, there's talks. There's the ah breath that helps one work with a family member or a friend or a patient to explore the the boundless nature of self. There's POWA, P-H-O-W-A, which is a guided practice of helping someone in the after-death state to merge into oneness. There's Guru Yoga, 
which we can do right now, that each moment we're surrendering into identification to that wholeness. I have met very, very few people who were dying, who at the end of life did not need to do forgiveness practice, forgiving themselves, forgiving those around them, asking forgiveness from other people. Uh, there's a practice which we're going to do right now for a few moments, which is dissolving into space from the heart. So that right now, I would ask you, as you breathe in, just imagine that there are nostrils right in the center of your chest, and that you can breathe into the center of your chest. And as you breathe out, you let go of all concepts, you let go of all grasping, and you let go infinitely in all directions in front of you and behind, to the right of you and to the left, above you and below, in expanding spheres of awareness or, or sensing. And then the next in-breath back into your heart, feeling devotion, feeling love, feeling compassion, and then letting go, breathing out, and paying particular attention to that simple moment at the very end of the out-breath where nobody's doing anything. This letting go on the out-breath is something we can do so many times during the day. Letting go of concept, letting go of I'm doing this, and letting go from the heart. One can do this without the heart, but doing it from the heart for most people is much easier beginning with devotion, which is the easiest way to be in the heart, because it's devotion to that which is love, that which is lovable, that which you have deepest faith in. And we move on from devotion to compassion, where even when there is suffering that we feel in our own body-mind, when we see in those around us, the open heart can meet that suffering, stabilizing the heart so we trust this letting go. When we're too attached to form, our bodies, our bank accounts, our relationships, we tend to be too tight in the mind and the body. And we're not enough attached to form when we're not paying enough attention, when we're just kind of floating around. We tend to be too loose. What we're exploring here is the possibility of tuning the string on the instrument of your life so that it's resonating in a beautiful way. Noticing when it's too tight, noticing when it's too loose, coming back then again and again to this balance of surrender from the heart. What the takeaway from today's talk is that now I'm going to explore with you the two direct ways of doing what it is that we're talking about. The devotional way and the direct way using the mind. The direct path of exploring who you are as coming to the conclusion that you're pure awareness, if you will, 
and the way of surrendering so much into love that you see that you and God and the mantra and your practice is all the same thing and that it brings you to the same place of there's not a you separate from the divine. So first of all, non-dual devotion. Usually devotion is a dualist practice. I am devoted to Christ or the mother or to Maharaji or to Hanuman. And pretty much everybody has to start at that place where there is a greater God that one is surrendering to, that one is loving, that one is feeling devotion towards. And as the heart opens more and more, any separation we feel from the beloved is painful. Then there's this natural purification process because we want to be with the beloved the beloved in the form of the deity on your altar, the beloved in the form of the partner that you're eating breakfast with, the beloved in the form of people dying in wildfires on Maui or whatever story that is catching your attention. There's the relative deity, the absolute deity. We begin with the relative deity. You're saying a mantra, you're doing devotional practice, bowing, prostrations, whatever you might be doing. But it leads then to the absolute deity. Maharaji would say things very clearly that God, guru, and self are the same thing, that there's the, the guru is not the body, that everybody is God, everything is God. In the Astravakra Gita, it says, love your true self, which is naturally happy and peaceful and bright, Awaken to your own nature, and all delusions melt like a dream. My personal practice of devotion is the practice of mantra. I know some of you have been using this as a core practice, but I'd like to explore it even if it's not your core practice because it shows, it shows the direction. There is a great saint called Nam Dev. Nam means na name. And Dave means Lord, Lord of the name. And he taught mantra. And he, he had four statements that is really the whole spiritual path, uh, and particularly the path in terms of exploring mantra. The first statement is, the name permeates the entire universe densely. Imagine that when I say the name Ram, or whatever name is uh, appealing to you, but I say the name Ram, that that name is not just me making a sound, but that name permeates the mouse here, it permeates the microphone, it permeates the images on the screen, that everything is one with that name. So that certainly we use the name as a technique to go beyond duality. But Namdev is saying that fundamentally, that everything is densely permeated with the essential nature of God's name. The second thing he says is the name itself is form, it form itself is name, which is very much like what the Buddha said in the Heart Sutra. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. What we're saying here, like imagine my friend Peter, 
he can't eat anymore. He can't. He can't even take liquid. He, they can't do the surgeries to put tubes in him to hydrate him. And he's getting weaker and weaker. Is it possible then to go beyond, without denying, the circumstance that he's in, but saying the name so that that in the moment that's everything, that the thirst is Ram. And the hunger is Ram, and the withering body is Ram, and the emotions of his wife and children who are there is Ram. That it's all Ram, right? That and every time the mind stops, starts jumping in, and saying, "But hey, wait a minute. Let's think about this. Let's get caught there. This is really difficult. Let's try to fix this." The heart trusts that it's okay to surrender back into Ram. That rather than just doing a Zen meditation or just a mindfulness meditation, that instead of being mindful of your breath, you're essentially being mindful of unconditional love in the form of sound. Ram, Ram, Ram. Statement number three, the all-pervading nature of the name can only be understood when one recognizes one's own I. When one's own name is not recognized, it is impossible to get the all-pervading name. When one knows himself, then one finds the name everywhere. Namdev is talking about using mantra, using devotion, to get to the place where we begin to investigate in a very direct way who we actually are, right? It's not stopping it. I'm saying the name to open my heart and feeling this juicy love affair with me and God, but beginning to notice how the, my grasping at who I think I am is again and again getting in the way of, is veiling my true identity as the name itself, as the source itself. Just simply saying, Ram or Ma or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me for an hour. And every time a thought comes up, you just let the thought go and come back to the name. It's very challenging to the mind. The mind wants to play. The mind wants to think. I think, therefore, I am. And then he finally goes on to say, none can realize the name by the practice of knowledge meditation or austerity. Surrender yourself at the feet of God and learn to know who the I in you is. After finding the source of that I, merge your individuality in that oneness, which is self-existent and devoid of all duality. It is that name that permeates the three worlds. We're going to talk about the same thing in a few minutes without the name, without devotion. But for many people with certain personality types, and certainly including myself, using devotion and then compassion as the gateway to this deep exploration makes it so much more palatable, accessible, and undaunting. The other practice we're going to be talking about in a few minutes is just directly going to the place where there's nothing but awareness, 
We're not worried about the objects of awareness. We're not worrying about the subject. It's just awareness. If you can do that, that's the direct way. That's the direct path. That's the sudden path. But can you, look right now, maybe there's some deity that really appeals to you, Krishna or the mother or Christ, just say some name and realizing that when the name is said, that there's really nobody saying it and that the name itself is that source. There's a paper by a woman named Olga Luchakova on the essence of the prayer of the heart, the Christian prayer of the heart. We explored that paper in one of our meetings maybe about a year ago. And she there in a very beautiful way, she's an academic, but in a very beautiful way, I put down academics because I used to be one, I guess, in a very beautiful way. She talks about using the prayer of the heart to come to non-duality. Olga says, prayer of the heart is above all a search for the living self. Life only truly begins after the self is found. Before that, nobody is. The whole being engagement in the direct intuition of identity. Prayer of the heart accomplishes this through disciplined self-inquiry and embodied worship, which, which collects the self, transcends the self, annihilates the self, and annihilates the annihilation. That's how deeply we're taking the prayer, that it annihilates the self. We're beginning to see who we are in this annihilation. Once again, without devotion and compassion, it's a very, very steep ask. It's a very, very steep path to surrender into simply awareness, watching awareness. Maharaji said things like, the world is just a dream, an illusion. You can't take anything with you when you die. The only thing that's important is how much you love God. He said, meditate like Christ. Christ was lost in love. He was one with all beings and he had great love for the world. He was crucified so that his spirit could spread throughout the world. He was one with God. He sacrificed his body for the Dharma. He never died. He never died. He's living spirit, living in the hearts of all. And as he was saying those words, tears were coming down his cheeks. Many people follow the path of devotion and they get to the point where their heart's a little more open than it used to be, where they feel a little kinder toward other people. They feel closer to God. There's more a sense of warmth and connectedness in their lives. And it's very appealing to stop at that point, that this is devotion. Can I bring it into my whole life? Can I just be in this loving relationship all the time? And maybe you want to spend a few lifetimes being in love with God as this outside thing, this external deity that you're in relationship with. But then that person who's in that relationship is going to die one day. And can we at least at times, go so deeply into devotion that the subject and the object of I love God 
disappears and all that's left is love itself. So now we're going to talk about the the direct path, so this path of self-inquiry, which is basically you're on the path, you're, you've been meditating, you've been trying to figure out who you are and suffer less, and at some point you you give up, you turn back, abandon seeking peace and happiness in relative experience, and just rest in being aware of that which is aware of the self of the capital S, resting in the silence of the heart. Ramana Maharshi, one of the most beautiful saints of the last century, said that the self, the ridayam, exists over on the right side of the chest, that the Atman is living there deep in, in, the, in the chest cavity. We're, we're being aware of what is always there, not fixated on the changing objects. This awareness radiates in all experience, no matter of content, the direct path. Most people need the preparation of compassion, but can we get to the point, like right now, where you're not concerned about the content of your awareness? You're not concerned about who is aware of the content, but there is this sense of beingness that's always there, the sense of awakeness, so that it's most easily noticed in the gaps. Now I will stop talking. Can you notice that sense of beingness that continues, that awareness of the moment? And whether you're distracted or you're drunk or you're frightened or you've just come out of a 20-day meditation retreat, all you can ever do is be aware of what's happening. Clear awareness, drunken awareness, sloppy awareness, whatever it is, you're there. And there's nothing else you can do when you're thinking about the future. It's happening right now when you're re remembering the past, it's right now. There's something that's so simple and so familiar that it's not an object. So it's not that we meditate on it or we try to find it. It's more a sense of surrender into beingness. Forgetting about all the devotional stuff for the time being. You're letting go of, I'm meditating. There's no meditation. Don't make meditation a, a special project or a special event. It's, it's not something that's serious or solemn. And we're not looking for a result. You'll still be neurotic if you're neurotic to begin with, right? And for some reason, John is laughing uproariously on that one. Okay. <laughs> yes, he is. It's okay to be neurotic. So Ramla said that line. I, I'm not sure how true it is, but it's a great line. If you're a son of a bitch and you get enlightened, you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch. And I think it's harder to get enlightened if you're really a son of a bitch. But the point is, that enlightenment isn't about your personality. It's not about that which changes. It's about surrendering into realizing what is inherently always present. Let me read a few lines from 
There's a book called The Teachings of Ramana Maharshi by a guy named David Godman. And he's collected these teachings from Ramana. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And I just like to read uh, a couple of really short paragraphs. It's really the summary of this whole path of self-inquiry in a way that it, to me is mind-shattering. Beginners in self-inquiry were advised by Sri Ramana to put their attention on the inner feeling of I and to hold that feeling as long as possible. They would be told that if their attention was distracted by other thoughts, they should revert to awareness of the I thought whenever they became aware that their attention had wandered. He suggested various aids to assist this process. One could ask oneself, who am I? Or where does this I come from? But the ultimate aim was to be continuously aware of the I, which assumes that it is responsible for all the activities of the body and mind. We're not worried about the content at all. Living, dying, happy, sad. In the early stages of practice, attention to the feeling I is a mental activity which takes the form of a thought or a perception. As the practice develops, the thought I gives way to a subjectively experienced feeling of I. And when this feeling ceases to connect and identify with thoughts and objects, it completely vanishes. What remains is an experience of being in which the sense of individuality has temporarily ceased to operate. The experience may be intermittent at first, but with repeated practice, it becomes easier and easier to reach and maintain. When self-inquiry reaches this level, there is an effortless awareness of being in which individual effort is no longer possible since the I who makes the effort has temporarily ceased to exist. But that's the essential thing. That's what the devotional path will bring you to eventually, right? That it's resting in God. And whether we think of God in a devotional sense or we think of God as pure consciousness, which is what God is anyway, in my humble opinion, those are just two different ways to getting to the same place. Now, both of these paths are very challenging because it involves complete ego annihilation. The ego doesn't like that one little bit, of course. It's going to kick and scream and complain and think of all kinds of important things for you to try to figure out. There's, there's no doubt about that. But you're going to die one day. We don't know when that day is. And to begin to practice the surrender into who you and I truly are, just for a few moments here and there, surrendering into beingness, letting go of the object, Dale's talking, my butt's on the chair, letting go of the subject, there's an I who's doing this. The mind tends to slow down. There's a sense of spaciousness.
and it's so familiar, it's so available, it's so omnipresent that we don't notice it because there's no contrast. It's always there, the sense of I-ness, the sense of beingness. Being aware of being aware, being aware of the I, either directly or through the heart with mantra in the way that Namdev was talking about and Olga Uchakova was talking about. Ramana said, do not meditate, be. Do not think that you are, be. Don't think about being, you are, okay? So that we are moment to moment to moment. There is this pure consciousness. And as I mentioned a few times, my ever-present nerd rises up and says that three guys just got the Nobel Prize for quantum entanglement, Nobel Prize in physics, for really showing mathematically that there's only one thing in the universe. There's only one thing, and it's consciousness. Form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. The name is, is densely permeating the universe. There's only name. There's only one. What a relief. Profound relief to surrender into that oneness. We do this again and again without even noticing. You look out the window and see, see nature. Maybe you're out in nature. And instead of saying, oh, I like that tree. Oh, that's an oak tree. Look at how the oak tree is shaped. You, there's just consciousness of, of tree. You're not identified with I'm doing it or what your concepts are about the tree. There's just that event happening. It's just consciousness. So imagine dying from that state of being. It's just another moment. Nothing's dying. The body dies, the mind, the concepts die, but this fundamental identity does not die. It can't die because it was never born. Now, I get that what I'm saying can be seen as a bit theoretical or even intellectual, but it is the fundamental core teaching of all mystical traditions. And whether you get there through surrender to God, through devotion, or the direct path of knowledge, really getting what Buddha is saying when he said form is emptiness and emptiness is form, or what Rupert Spira or Ramana Maharshi is saying about just being aware of awareness itself, being aware of the I, not the I that the, not the separate eye, not the small eye, but the, the self with a capital S, that pure consciousness. Then all of life's vicissitudes, all the ups and downs and ins and outs, they come and they go. There's happiness and sadness, there's birth and death, but there's profound equanimity. When Ramana Maharshi was dying, his devotees, Said, oh, please don't leave us. We love you so much. Please don't leave us. And he said, leave you. Where could I go? Because who he was was not the body that was dying. 
Okay. I'd like to dedicate the merit of our time together today to my dear friend Peter. And I would like to open this up now to remarks or questions before we take a short break. Thank you so much. I I kind of had, um, well, two questions popped up and you can just choose to answer one, but um, very few of us have met um, somebody who embodies the state you're speaking of um, in that true pure consciousness state. And um, I've heard your story about uh, going to the temple early to meet Maharaji and how it almost freaked you out when you're alone with him and um, you you saw nobody there. Yeah, and um, that those types of stories I've heard from other uh, devotees, and they have a profound effect um, in kind of my understand my deeper understanding. And I was wondering if maybe you could uh, maybe describe that a little bit more. And uh, my other question, should you choose? to decide on this, is I've looked up the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, is that the grand unifying theory uh, uh, concept? I, I, I've looked up the um, the theory that you're speaking of, and I've read some you know Scientific American papers on that. But I was wondering if, uh, given your background, you could describe it to us um, in layman's terms. Um, so either one. <laughs> Thank you. Well, obviously, I'd like to stick with the first one. Yeah, Although my mind loves the second one. So what I noticed in being around any number of people who uh, seem to me, and a lot of other people seem to agree that were realized beings, Maharaji Anandamai, the 16th Karmapa, the Dalai Lama, Ingo Kense, Rinpoche, Kala Rinpoche, on and on, maybe a dozen people, was that there was an incredible fluidity in their consciousness and behavior. They would have emotions, very strong emotions at times, but they'd just come and go in an instant. Whereas when you or I, say, get angry or sad or something, we dump all this cortisol into the bloodstream and then we put cortisol on the cortisol on the cortisol and then we're stressed and we have to take blood pressure medicine or whatever it is, right? So that in one moment, Maharaji would be that emptiness that freaked me out when it, I didn't come to the temple early, actually. The story was slightly different, but you did get the gist of it, that he called us over to the other side of the compound where he was, and I was the first person through the door. And he was taken, I don't know, not taken aback, but he kind of didn't put himself completely together or something. And I looked right into his eyes, and there was nobody there. It was like looking into uh, an endless abyss. At other times, he would be like the perfect grandfather. Have you had enough to eat? Are you warm enough? Let me give you some food. You know, he was like so warm and fuzzy. And it would go back and forth between those things. And he'd be, so it was very challenging to having some some concept of he's the guru that I've been looking for. He's so great. I'm so not great. I need to have some kind of relationship here. And I'm doing a really lousy job of trying to explain uh, that emptiness. But in Buddhism, they say very clearly that the nature of the heart is empty. 
And that's kind of the, the core of what we're talking about today with that devotional path in that, yes, there is a really dualistic kind of love. I'm loving you. I'm loving God. Isn't this great? But, but true love with a capital L, our true nature, is empty of concept. It's empty of I'm doing it. Most of us, to get to that kind of empty love, it requires cultivating this much more dualistic kind of love and gradually trusting the surrender into not knowing, into not doing, if you will, of just surrendering into love itself. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.